Good morning. It is seven minutes after 11 o'clock. Dave Rowland is going to be with us about 20 minutes after the hour. Uh, it turns out that Sidney Powell is pled guilty uh, over efforts to overturn Trump's Georgia uh, loss. Uh, she got probation. What are the implications? Dave Rowland will be on to talk about that. I'm also going to have him explain to you exactly what it is that is holding up the Second Amendment Preservation Act. has nothing to do with any conflict uh, or, uh, you know, even that the law is badly written. We'll chat about that. But right now, Mike Murphy is with us. Como Buzz with one Z, ComoBuzz.com. We're looking for a new chief of police here in Columbia. And uh, there was a, an introductory uh, meeting where... Uh, Questions were asked of these uh, uh, candidates individually, and Mike was there. We'll get his feedback on that. But first, Mike, w well, let me just say welcome. Glad to have you with us. Good morning. Thanks. Um, what do you make of this picture of the mayor? I don't, know I, I, I don't know what to think. My first guess is, is it's uh, uh, some type of deep fake. I, I, I know the mayor really well, and, uh, and I've uh, probably emerged as their most uh, uh, vocal critic. Uh, but I don't see her walking around in that shirt. Now, I could be wrong, of course, or somehow maybe it's some attempt at humor, or I have no idea what would be going on, but my first guess is, uh, uh, my first reaction was I didn't really believe that she was wearing that shirt. It looks to me like somebody, you know, we have some talented folks out there who make memes and do some of these types of things, and that would be my guess, but I, I you know, I just saw it a couple hours ago, so I haven't had a chance to check and see what other folks are saying about it. Does anybody know where the photograph was taken? No, I couldn't tell either. I looked at it kind of hard, and I hadn't seen it before. Often these things are taken off, you know, Facebook or something and then repurposed. No, I, I, I don't know. If this is a, a deep fake, and I'd be really angry with whoever did yeah. this because they'd be much maligning her for, yeah. um, for no reason at all. Uh, but if it's, a, if it's truly... A T-shirt that she wore in public. Um, okay, then then I've got a then I got a mouthful here to say. It, yeah, it would be is it would be in pretty poor taste. I agree with you totally. I'm holding off myself. We'll we'll find out here shortly. You know, a few hours. I think I I, I uh, was racing around and uh, heard you guys talking about. It. I actually, went and took a look at it and uh, haven't had a chance to somewhere. Call there should be a picture of her in that exact yeah. same position. Without that written on the uh, on the shirt, correct, yep. and 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 that's what uh, that will nail it. Uh, anyway, uh, let's move on. The, the chief of police, um, you were there as uh, the uh, Boone in, at the Boone County Building mm -hmm. when they were all being uh, brought out, the finalists. Mm -hmm. and what uh, what uh, did you uncover? Did you did you get to ask any questions? No, nobody did. So there, they had uh, four candidates were there. They brought they kept them in a green room so nobody could hear the other one. And they asked all four of them five identical questions. They uh, so one ca each candidate came out separately and did their whole thing one at a time. Went through the five questions. The five questions were very uh, lame, for lack of a better way to put it. Nobody got to ask a question. In fact. The city said, well, send us your questions and have them in by October 6th. People send in their questions before we even knew who the finalists were. So it was five questions that were just, you know, tell us about, you know, how you approach public safety. What about staffing shortages? Um, what about homeless and mental health? Dealing with community groups. And then some question about 
do you think we should be accredited or something? So they got to talk, but uh, I can't even come up with an exception where anybody really said anything. I think probably the, you know, you got impressions of where they were coming from. Uh, uh, Jill Schluti, the uh, internal candidate, she performed very well. She was comfortable. She did a nice job. The guy from uh, uh, Kansas City, he's a major and he's a very high ranking uh uh, major in the Kansas City Police Department. He, of course, is what you would expect. He was very knowledgeable, and uh, uh, I, I thought he was very um, uh, reserved, uh, which obviously is his style, but almost to a point of being disappointing. Um, the guy from the, there's a guy from uh, Greeley, Colorado, who's 46, about the same age as Schluti, and very, very, very similar experience. Um, so, to me, those two are kind of like. I'm not really sure why he's there, which is really the point of all this. I'm not really sure why any of them are there because the city manager hasn't told us what it is he's looking for. The fourth candidate, this Nathaniel Clark, he got all the attention. He's 63. He's the guy that's been through several jobs and all the lawsuits when he leaves, both against him and when he's leaving. You know, he's got all kinds of all kinds of baggage in his background, and he kind of wowed the crowd. He's uh, he's a uh, he speaks. He speaks like a, uh, he orates like a uh, black pastor in an evangelical type uh, church. He's, he, 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 he's uh, quite a character, and I'm not necessarily saying it in a good way. I think it, uh, it's going to divide people for sure. Now, if he's a, a serious candidate or not, well, I guess you have to assume he is. He's here. He's one of four finalists. It's just hard to really imagine him becoming the police chief in Columbia, Missouri, so I'm not sure what the city manager has in mind, but uh, and then now we're going to have a couple weeks to weeks to wake. They're still here today. They're meeting with several different interview groups that the city manager has put together. It's all being done in secret. Uh, he won't tell us who's even on his interview panels, uh, and they're all he won't. They're close to the public, also. So this whole thing, this whole process, has just been really, really strange. I don't know how we're supposed to decide who we want for a police chief if we don't know what it is he's looking for. So the two burning questions are, number one, do we need reform in the police department? A lot of people think that's what we're, we're supposed to be going on, that we need this reform at the command level of the, the police department. But so how do you pick you pick your police chief accordingly? Then there's this whole philosophy of how we're policing. You know, our our officers are angry because they're uh, they can't be proactive. And shouldn't we be asking uh, how we're going to police going forward? And, and what does this these police candidates these chief candidates think and do they match? None of that's going on. So we have all this community engagement and it's all about we want somebody honest and who can build trust and who's got personal integrity. Well, you know, I'm, I would assume they all have all of that. There's been no deeper conversation that's been public and certainly this forum last night was nothing more than a kind of come on out and talk for 15 or 20 minutes these pretty softball questions and, and we move on. You know, Three of the candidates have to learn the system, learn the city, know which cops they can rely on and which, you know, one, you know, they've got to start from the ground up. Uh, and they have no experience in Columbia. One of the candidates knows the city, knows the police officers, knows the, the highs and lows, the goods and the bads. Uh, knows what's been tried, has has been there, and has also demonstrated leadership. Uh, why would you go anywhere else? Well, what you're describing to a certain amount of people 
or here's the thought. Jeff, that was that describes Jeff Jones exactly four years ago. And there's people who believe. I wish we knew what the city manager believed, but there's people who believe that what needed to happen in that police department over the last four years did not happen. And the progress that needed to happen at the at the command level among the command staff did not happen. So if you believe that, then 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 Schluti isn't your candidate uh, unless she can convince you that she understands that and wants to make something happen. Yeah, and, but you know the. Former chief, uh, he and I disagreed on a couple of things, some very important things uh, as far as I'm concerned as a libertarian. But I don't see where there's a big problem with the Columbia police officers and the job that they're doing. I I see some problems with the administration. Well, precisely. But I don't see a problem with, you know, they're not beating up uh, minorities and shooting people helter-skelter. They're, uh, they're, they're doing the job as best they can with the tools they have. I, I don't. I think that's a uh, a commonly held, a very widely held um, opinion. I think there's uh, more concern about the command staff and how the place is being administered and how it's going to be administered going forward. And and what they're facing is, if you look at number one, we have a growing crime problem needs to be addressed with a strategy that's not in place. We have this whole you know homelessness strategy that's not necessarily a police issue, but it but it's out there. Um, uh, th- there's several issues or, or we're not retaining staff at all. That somehow falls back on police. That goes to some type of culture issue if you want to talk about that. But that's, that's the conversation in the air that people are wondering, does the city manager, where this all falls back to, how is he going to fix all this? Does he believe that it's he's a profound change, transformative change, they call it, with one of these guys like Nathaniel Clark or the guy from uh, uh, Kansas City? Or does he not believe that? Does he believe it needs some tweaks? We should stick with the status quo and that Jill Schlute is the person to take us, you know, into the to the next level here. Uh, no indication from him. And I really don't know what this whole public engagement thing is contributing to the process. So I'm just waiting to see what he decides. And I think what he decides tells us what he thinks. And then, and then whatever it is, at this point, it's going to divide the community. How can you have four finalists? For one job, you've decided what we need, and they're so incredibly different. How can Nathaniel Clark, this guy from Forest Park, Georgia, Fort Smith, Arkansas, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, 63 years old, with all this incredible amount of baggage and stuff that's happened, he's blown up departments everywhere he's been. Pine, in uh, Fort Smith, 30 officers uh, quit or retired when he got hired. He's in the same finalist with Jill Schluti, who would be very much uh, a, a comfortable status quo kind of candidate. I don't get it. I don't get it. He, he's not saying I don't, I don't get it either. But if if I wanted to find out more about what you've uh, uncovered and what's going on in Colombia, uh, might I just go to comobuzz.com with one Z? Yeah, there's some stuff there. There's some stuff there. Yeah. <laughs> there's some stuff there. Yeah, there is. All right, uh, Dave Roland is uh, waiting in the wings here, so I got to throw you out of the studio. Right. But thanks for coming yep. on board. Thank you, Mike Murphy, comobuzz.com. Quick break. We'll be back. Gary Nolan Show, Zimmer Radio Network. It is 22 minutes after 11 o'clock, and Dave Rowland is with us, uh, MoFreedom.org. He, this is the guy that likes to sue the government. They they trample on your rights. They screw the pooch, and you let him know he will come in like the Lone Ranger and, uh, well, turn things around. Uh, so uh, with that in mind, let's uh, bring him on board. Now, Dave, I'm going to kind of throw a... Uh, Throw something out here that is not on your list. 
and that is the Second Amendment Preservation Act. The courts are still holding us back on the Second Amendment Preservation Act. But I'm, in, I'm furious about their reasoning because it's not that it was badly written. It's not that it conflicts with the Constitution or with the dominance of federal law. It's the motive for writing it? Kind of. Um, so, so basically what the trial court said, the federal trial court, was that the motive for writing it did conflict with the federal constitution, which is kind of nonsense. Um, and I have high confidence that the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, where the case is currently pending, is going to say that this was kind of nonsense. Um, but until they do, the trial court's opinion remains in place. The state government, the attorney general's office, asked the Eighth Circuit to stay the decision of the trial court, but the Eighth Circuit said, no, nah, we're not going to do that. We're going to leave the, the trial court decision in force. Um, the Attorney General's office has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to stay the decision, and I don't know if there has been a ruling on that yet. I, if there has been, I haven't seen it. Um, but honestly, I don't think it's likely that the Supreme Court is going to step in at this phase. I think um, in all likelihood, they will want to sit back and see what the Eighth Circuit does um, in terms of ruling on the merits of the case. That case, uh, it hasn't been set for oral argument yet. All the briefings is done. Um, the Freedom Center of Missouri, of course, submitted a brief strongly in support of the Second Amendment Preservation Act. Um, but but we don't have an oral argument date yet. That should be coming sometime in the next few weeks. And so as soon as we have a date for oral argument, of course, we'll let everybody know. Um, and, and people should be allowed to come and listen to the arguments in person. In all likelihood, the arguments are going to take place in St. Louis. Um, There's not an absolute guarantee that Eighth Circuit does move around um, from place to place in hearing arguments, but they usually try to have Missouri cases heard when they are sitting in St. Louis. So, um, so we will certainly let people know when that oral argument date gets set, and then we'll see what the judges say um, with their questions and see if maybe we can read some tea leaves at that point. Wow. Based on the... Uh, that just is so infuriating. All right, we will <clears throat> keep you up to date because Dave Rowland is going to keep us up to date. In the meantime, Sidney Powell, uh, she jumped on a plea deal. She even wrote a letter of apology to the state of Georgia. Yeah, she did. Um, so I do want to be really clear about this. Sidney Powell, in accepting this plea deal, is not recanting any of the positions she had previously taken regarding the legitimacy of um, the 2020 presidential election. As far as I know, she still contends that Donald Trump actually won the election, but um, she was charged with illegally accessing voting machines in Georgia for the purpose of trying to overturn the result in Georgia, the officially recognized result in Georgia. And she has now pled guilty to those charges. Now, she had been charged with felonies, which meant that uh, for each offense, she, should have, uh, she could have been punished with more than a year in prison. They have reduced those charges to misdemeanors. And I believe they said she will serve no jail time. 
Um, I, as far as I can understand from the plea deal, she is getting probation, and then she's also going to have to pay several thousand dollars in fines for uh, for what she did. But basically, there was a county in Georgia uh, that was very strongly pro-Trump, and the local officials really wanted to be able to help out uh, Trump's attorneys. And so they coordinated to give Trump's attorneys access to the voting machines and the manuals and all of the data that was on the voting machines. And that is actually a really big no-no. Like, you're not supposed to do that. Um, and um, so the, the big question here is the extent to which President Trump had awareness and or authorized what they did. Um, and Sidney Powell has indeed agreed that she will testify about the other co-defendants in this case. So it is possible, although we do not know for sure, that she will ultimately say, yes, President Trump knew about this and he expressly put us up to this, in which case um, that very well could lead to a conviction for President Trump for um, for attempting to undo the Georgia election, and and that would not be that would not be good for him. No, it wouldn't. Um, it, it, my knowledge of Trump supporters is pretty vast, and I will tell you right now that if Sidney Powell turns around and says, yeah, we knew we shouldn't be doing this. Donald Trump knew we shouldn't be doing this. And he, uh, he said, go ahead and do it anyway. Trump supporters will say, she's a coward. She made that up just to get off the hook. I'm, I'm just, Very possible. I'm just and and that that actually might end up working in President Trump's favor um, because... You know, it's possible that a jury will not find Sidney Powell to be a very credible witness. Uh, and sometimes when witnesses enter these plea deals, when they agree to testify against their co-defendants, the juries can say, you know what, I think they're just trying to save their own necks. I don't believe what they're saying. Now, I do want to clarify, the issue here is not whether President Trump knew that what he was doing was illegal. As, as far as I know, there's not a, a knowing element to this particular crime. The question is, did he authorize it? Um, you know, was he the one who instructed them to do this? And if so, I'm not sure that him being aware that it was illegal is, is going to get him off the hook if, if he did not know. Um, it Ignorance might, is no excuse. Um, it, in this situation, it may, in many cases, there is a knowing element in order for, uh, that's necessary for a conviction. I just don't know the way George's law is written, whether that's the issue here. Wow. All right. Well, time will tell, and we will see uh, in an unusually long and detailed opinion, the Missouri Court of Appeals Western District upheld a conviction of a police officer for killing a civilian. We'll get the details on that from Dave Rowland in just a few minutes on The Gary Nolan Show. It's the Zimmer Radio Network. This is The Gary Nolan Show. 
It is 11.35. Glad to have you with us. And, uh, well, like John Wayne riding into a, into a shootout, Dave Rowland comes in fighting for your freedom. How's that? Is that, is that a good... Uh, that works for me, man. That works for you? All right, yeah, Pilgrim. Let's I'll take get, that. Let's get going. Uh, all right, uh, let's talk about this uh, uh, unusually long and detailed opinion uh, from the Missouri Court of Appeals Western District. Uh, on the uh, conviction of a police officer for killing a civilian. Yeah, the, the, the circumstances of this case are just really, really unfortunate. Um, you had a, a plainclothes police officer um, who claimed to have seen a uh, vehicle traveling in excess of the speed limit. There's no video suggesting that, that um, or to support that evidence, but... They fell in behind this vehicle, followed it to a home uh, where the vehicle parked, and then the officer decided he was going to um, search the property for evidence of wrongdoing. Now, part of the issue here is that they didn't have any legitimate basis to search the property. Like, if, if you see somebody who was speeding and you can stop them on the road and ticket them for speeding, that's one thing. But this person had already arrived at a location, had departed the vehicle, um, and they weren't, they didn't have an arrest warrant or anything like that. Um, but they just decided they were going to search the property for some evidence of wrongdoing. And if you're going to do that, you've got to have probable cause to believe that you're going to find something that indicates wrongdoing. And they had nothing. Um, while the police officers were on the property, uh, they encountered the victim. And the the officer claimed that he saw the victim grab a gun and point it at him. Um, but the officer was very clear in that he said that the man had grabbed the, the gun with his left hand and raised it to fire. But the evidence showed that the guy was actually right-handed. Um, and also the location that a gun was found was not really in close proximity to where the victim was shot. Um, and so the judge convicted. Now, a very important element to this appeal is that the officer chose, instead of having a jury, he chose to have a judge-tried case. Now, a lot of people may not realize, but if you are accused of committing a crime, you do have that option. Um, it happens a fair bit over in St. Louis City, where juries are notoriously hostile towards law enforcement officials. And so in order to avoid the complications of a potentially hostile jury, um, many officers that are accused of wrongdoing over there will say, you know what, I'm going to invoke my right under the Missouri Constitution to have the judge decide whether I am guilty or innocent. And that's what the officer did here. Well, part of the problem, though, is when you give the judge that authority, you are really and truly putting your um, your freedom in the judge's hands, because if the judge decides against you, then the appellate courts give the judge extreme deference when it comes to the factual conclusions. 
In fact, that that deference is so extreme that even if a judge does not make particular findings regarding the facts of the case, the court is required to assume that the judge considered the facts in whatever light would be necessary to uphold the verdict. So that's pretty dramatic. Um, so the the officer here tried to challenge the conviction by claiming that there was not sufficient evidence to support the verdict against him. But again, the rule of law in Missouri says that the appellate court has to assume that the court found facts as necessary to support the outcome. And so this, I think, maybe was a doomed appeal from the outset, um, just because of the way that Missouri law applies on an appeal from a judge-tried case. Now, one of the other things that I think is really interesting is um, Judge Chapman, who is the judge who wrote this opinion, um, has kind of a reputation for being pretty solidly pro-law enforcement. And I think that perhaps in order to make absolutely clear that the officer just did not have a leg to stand on, Judge Chapman went way out of his way to explain the intricacies of this case. I think a normal case like this, where you have someone challenging sufficiency of the evidence, the court disposes of it in a dozen pages or so. Um, Judge Chapman wrote 42 pages wow. uh, worth of an opinion. And I think that he did that because he was so sensitive to the concerns um, that people might have that he was upholding the conviction of a police officer. And so I think Judge Chapman wanted to make sure he was dotting I's and, uh, and crossing T's to show, no, look, really, this is the outcome that the law requires here. Um, but, I, you know, I don't want to say it's a good result because it's, it is just such an unfortunate situation all the way around. Um, but it does represent an officer being held accountable for, I think, really unjustifiable actions. I think the facts of this case show that, that what the officer did was completely unjustified, and it ended up in the death of a civilian. And, and we want to see officers held accountable when they truly don't have any justification for what they did. It is 1142. Dave Rowland is with us. If you just turned the radio on, mofreedom.org. Uh, what is a key search, uh, keyword search warrant? Oh, this is, this is really interesting. We talked about it a couple of times. I want to make sure that the listeners understand it. So one of the things that has happened ever since the rise of Internet search engines is that if law enforcement officials find themselves stumped, while trying to investigate a crime, one of the things they sometimes do is they will subpoena these search engines and they will just kind of cast a broad net and they'd say, well, hey, did anyone Google this phrase or this term or this address? Now, when they subpoena Google or, or some other internet giant like this, they don't actually have any idea about who might turn up. So they're not trying to, to find the search history of any individual person. Um, 
as opposed to say, let's let's say that you've got a murder and there's one person who's a suspect and you say, hey, I want to see this person's search history to find out if maybe they were searching terms that might be associated with the crime, like poisons or things like that. It's not that situation. It's that they really have no idea who could have done this and they want to search for anyone who might have used these search terms. It is an incredibly broad power, an incredibly far-reaching power, and it makes a lot of us who believe in privacy and the right against uh, unreasonable searches really nervous that the government could have this power. So the Colorado Supreme Court just became the first court in the country to address whether this kind of a keyword search violates the federal constitution or the Colorado state constitution. And they ended up coming back and saying it does not. Now, I want to be clear, this was a very closely divided case. There are seven judges on this court. It was a 4-3 decision. The three dissenters said this has to be unconstitutional. We can't give the government the authority to do this. Um, but, But the majority said no constitutional problem here. Um, the facts of the case, it was an arson case. Somebody had set a building on fire and the, the, the police said, you know what, maybe whoever did this Googled the address before they acted. And so they asked for a warrant that would require Google to produce information about anyone that had Googled this address within a certain time period, it was actually 15 days before the crime was committed that they were asking. And they got uh, eight responses. And five of those were in the vicinity of the, uh, or five of the people who had made those searches were in the vicinity of the address itself. They looked into those, they ruled two out, and then they got warrants to search for the remaining three people that had Googled this address, and one of them they ended up deciding was the person who had committed the crime. So the person that they accuse of this crime says, whoa, 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 you violated my constitutional rights by um, getting this keyword search warrant um, to go and get this information from Google. So the Colorado Supreme Court says you do not have a property right in the keyword searches that you um, that you put into Google for Fourth Amendment purposes, but because of the agreement between individual users and Google, you may have a right under the Colorado Constitution. Ultimately, they ended up saying that. Um, Even if there was a right against unreasonable searches under the Colorado Constitution, they ended up saying that the search was justified nonetheless. And so um, they've upheld this, uh, this search. Part of the reason I think this is so interesting is that Missouri has a constitutional provision in the state constitution that is more extensive than the Fourth Amendment. We amended our state constitution in 2014 so that it doesn't just secure people's rights to privacy in their persons, papers, homes, or effects. We extended it to electronic communications and data. And we also specified that 
no warrant shall issue to search or access electronic data or communications unless you particularly describe what's to be searched, the person or the things to be seized, or the data or communication to be accessed. And you also have to have probable cause. So in Missouri, because we adopted this provision almost a decade ago, um, we may have heightened protections that at least the Colorado Supreme Court has determined do not apply under the Fourth Amendment. We are still going to have to wait and see whether federal courts come to the same conclusion, but it is going to be a really hot topic over the next couple of years. And I, I think that we hopefully can sleep a little bit easier knowing that we have a really strong state constitutional provision to protect us against the abuse of this kind of authority. Wow, that's a lot of uh, a lot of information they can get pretty easily, it seems. Um, we were up against the clock. we got to take a break. He needed money for a campground. So he joined the board of a Missouri disaster fund. That's next. Dave Rowland, our guest, MoFreedom.org on the Gary Nolan Show. The Zimmer Radio Network. He rides in on a white horse into the courtroom to defend your liberty. He is Dave Rowland. Uh, that's a new one I just thought of. Uh, Dave, Dave is MoFreedom.org. He's a brilliant attorney, and he does fight for your freedom. When the government tramples on your rights, and they do it a lot, He's the guy in the state of Missouri that will go into the courtroom and fight to protect you. It is 1153. He needed money for a campground. So he joined the board of a Missouri disaster fund. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, this is, this is a crazy situation that um, was brought to my attention last week. Uh, Tony Messenger, the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist over at the, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, uh, reached out and let me know about this situation down in Iron County. Um, listeners may or may not recall, but um, quite some time ago, there was a reservoir collapse. Uh, the, the Tom Salk Reservoir um had a, a monumental collapse and it, it did tons and tons of damage down in Reynolds and Iron Counties. And at the time, Jay Nixon was the attorney general for the state and he negotiated a settlement with Ameren, uh, who is responsible for the reservoir and its collapse. Uh, and the settlement included $180 million. Seven million of that money was set aside specifically to help with the economic development, redevelopment of the affected communities in Reynolds and Iron Counties. And they had to establish these nonprofits to oversee the distribution of these funds. But the crazy thing is, is for about 15 years, nothing was done with these funds. Um, they largely just sat on them. Very few grants were being issued. Um, but then all of a sudden, the Iron County Economic Partnership started to distribute funds, and a lot of those funds were going to people who had, up until very recently, been members of the board itself. So people who were responsible for making these decisions about where the funds were going to be allocated were not distributing funds, but then they would resign from the board. And within a matter of weeks and sometimes days, they would submit their own grant application for maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it would be granted by the people who up until recently had just been their colleagues. 
so uh, this one guy, um, Michael Fleeg, came down and he decided he wanted to build a, a fancy campground in Iron County. And he realized maybe the best way to ensure funding for this is to join this board and then resign from the board and collect the money. And that's exactly what he did. And so um, very, very suspect how all of this went down. Um, And now that it's being exposed, the question is what, if anything, can be done about this? So the the IRS has rules against self-dealing that say that you're not supposed to be able to receive um, grant money from an organization like this until five years have passed since you served on the board. Um, that definitely seems to have been violated here. But more interestingly, this board, I believe, is what under Missouri law would be considered a quasi-public governmental body. It was established for the purpose of seeing this agreement between the Attorney General's office and the uh, in Ameren brought to fruition to make sure this funding got to the right spots. And I believe under Missouri law, that means that they had to comply with the Sunshine Law in terms of how they conducted their meetings, in terms of the records that they were keeping and all that sort of thing. And there's a quirk under the Sunshine Law that says that if an entity subject to the law violates it, Even if the violation was not knowing or purposeful, the judge has the opportunity to undo whatever actions the organization took that was in violation of the law. In other words, there is a significant possibility that if a court finds that the Sunshine Law was violated here, they could claw back these hundreds of thousands of dollars that were, I believe, improperly distributed by this board in Iron County. So um, it's definitely a situation everyone needs to keep their eyes on. It's, it's possible that perhaps all of this money can come back into this nonprofit so that it can be um, allocated properly under the law. But, but definitely a shady situation and one that we all need to, and it, it's another example of why transparency is so important. So we can uncover situations like this and hopefully remedy those situations. Uh, was this government money or Ameren money? Uh, it was money that Ameren had allocated to the government, or it, it was allocated as a result of an agreement with the government. So the money no longer belong, belonged to Ameren. The government said, we are setting this money aside for a nonprofit to distribute. The money didn't technically belong to the nonprofit. It was being administered by the nonprofit. You see what I'm saying? All right. Keep an eye on it and let us know. Dave Roland, MoFreedom.org. Dave, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Gary. All right, whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. No way for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. You seize the day, Carpe Diem and Gwen, baby. Honey, I'm coming home.